the future of technology. How will it affect those of us in the enterprise? What will the impacts be on consumers? Paul Doherty, he is with Accenture. Paul, tell us about your role, your work at Accenture. Technology is reshaping the world like it never has before. And I think of you know my role and Accenture's role as helping helping navigate through that. And there's really three things that I you know that I think about when I think about our business. It's our clients, our people, and our partners. Our clients are, you know, where our our um, mission is to help our clients achieve their goals and harness technology to achieve their ambitions. And we're almost 700,000 people strong in Accenture uh, right now. And uh, well, at our well on track to be uh, to our goal of 50/50 gender diversity by 2025, and that's a passion of mine as well: gender equality in computer science and tech, with you know external roles on uh, the board of Girls Who Code and, and other things in addition to our internal efforts. And and then there's our partners. You know, we you know the technology industry. What this is all about is 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 really leveraging the power of all the amazing innovation across all the technology companies, the hyperscalers, the app, enterprise application companies, the startups, and others in uh, helping leverage that technology to my, the first thing I talked about, which is the clients and helping clients you know, apply the technology to improve their businesses. So that's, that's in essence what it is. You know, the formal title is uh, Group Chief Executive of our technology business, which is about uh, $38 billion of Accenture's revenue and about half of the, the people that I mentioned. And um, I also have the title Chief Technology Officer, which is about setting the technology direction it's all those partner relationships that I talked about. It's the roughly you know billion dollars, one point one billion dollars a year that we spend in research and development on improving our business as well as the venture investing and things we do to drive innovation. Paul, you have just written this book. It's called Radically Human. It's an interesting title. What does Radically Human have to do with technology? Radically Human uh, is the second book uh, that I've written. The first was Human Plus Machine, which I'll refer to a little bit. And what we're talking about in Radically Human is a step beyond where we went with human plus machine. With Radically Human, we're talking about what happens as tech, you know, technology itself becomes more human-like and what, you know, and how does that create you know, the potential for even greater, you know, radically human, you know, potential and capabilities that we can develop in ourselves. That's the, you know, kind of the balance we're, we're looking at. And I view it as a step you know, kind of a third step in the evolution of how we use technology. The first step was, you know, people using technology. You know, we had to figure out how to use machines and green terminals back when I was in you know, punch cards and things back when I was initially programming. And for a long time, we've been subservient to these machines. And if you think about IT programs, it was about investing millions of dollars in change management to try to figure out how to train people to use all this complex, clunky technology. We moved from that to the human plus machine era, which is what I talked about in the last book, which is about leveling the playing field between humans and technology and creating this human plus you know, machine uh, symbi symbiosis, so to speak, that we talked about in that book. And with Radically Human, we're talking about the next step now, as technology really becomes more human-like in a lot of different ways that we can talk about. How, how do we take this new step into a really radically human era, which is really truly augmenting and maximizing you know, the human potential in us all using technology in a more effective way? How do we accomplish that transformation that you just described? Talking the book about some research we did, we did the large, what we think is the largest ever study, research study of how businesses around the world are using uh, technology, largest ever study of enterprise technology. We surveyed 8,300 companies, asked all sorts of questions, and we found out some surprising things uh, in the course of doing the research. And uh, the, another interesting thing was the research started before COVID. So we, um, so we had a uh, 
you know, kind of the, the research before COVID. And then we repeated it, you know, uh, you know, more recently as, you know, as, as the, as we kind of moved to the, 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 the post COVID era and the, 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 the dichotomy saw was really, that we saw was really striking and it reflected this change in how technology was being used that we write a lot about in radically human. So before uh, the pandemic, the stu- our study showed that the leaders in applying technology, the digital leaders, uh, there was about 10% of companies that we identified in this category, were outpacing the rest by 2x, a factor of 2x, uh, which was striking in and of itself. You know, that the, and it was the way they were using technology that was doing that. And then we redid that research and we, we, we didn't know what we'd find, we're, to be honest, but what we found really surprised us, which was that that gap of, uh, had widened from 2x to 5x. The top 10% were now outperforming the rest by a factor of 5x. And again, it was how they were using technology. We saw things like almost you know new technologies being adopted at a 70% greater rate during the pandemic than before. The pandemic being you know f- this forcing function around innovation. We talk about compressed transformation. Companies needing to figure out how to you know how to uh, leapfrog and become leaders in technology faster. And that's the whole shift that we experienced. And then in Radically Human, what we're looking at is what are the underlying patterns in that shift? And one of the things we talk about is, is this a, is what we call the IDEAS framework. It's an acronym. It stands for, it's I-D-E-A-S. It stands for Innovation, Data, Expertise, Architecture, and Strategy. And we what, we, what we're positing with the, the book is that you need to invert the assumptions you have on these five areas to really look at how you maximize your leverage of technology and approach innovation in a different way to create this radically human effect. Can you give us some examples of where organizations are taking this and and putting it into practice? You know, what we're talking about here is, uh, again, you know, flipping some of the assumptions around using artificial intelligence and what it means to create these radically human capabilities. We're talking about uh, new techniques um, like um, uh, uh, common sense reasoning, for example, you know, moving beyond the machine learning and, and uh, more basic uh, approaches and technologies that companies may be using, and um, and the kind of you know different results that you can create as, as a as a result of this. You know, companies like Effectiva um, using who I think you may have, you may have talked to to one of your programs, looking at using emotional AI in this case. Uh, that we're applying with one industrial equipment manufacturer to look at things like the, the the safety characteristics of their human heavy equipment drivers, so that they can understand alertness and awareness and anticipate you know problems before they might occur. So again, allowing a person to be more effective, to be more human, in, you know, in in their characteristics, but by, by leveraging technology more effectively. So that's you know that's one example. Another example is in this uh, in the data area, and one one thing we talk about in data. Uh, is moving from uh, you know from big data to small data, you know from you know maximum data to minimum data and back from big data to small data and back. It's it, you know, big data and the GPT models that have billions of parameters and such are important for certain purposes, but in many cases, what we're seeing it's the smaller data that truly differentiates companies and really understanding what's the small data that uh, that leverages you. And this can come in a couple ways. For example, in your supply chain, really understanding the small data that that it, that uh, differentiates how you make your products using big you know, big data for other purposes, perhaps. But understanding the small data that can drive you to to have you know greater supply chain ad- advantage in the availability and the way you use your your goods, for example. 
Uh, or another example of small data is what companies are finding by using smaller data on edge devices to do some of their processing, because you can't always get it back to a cloud or back to your data center to process with the volumes of information as you move to more edge-based architectures. It's again, an example of you know, the small data and what you can do on the edge being more important uh, for some applications than the big data that you can uh, use uh, you know, at the core of the organization. So those are a couple of examples. We can you know, go into more, Michael, if it's uh, interesting. Paul, so is the the general idea here that technology advances and the way that we gather, use, analyze data, therefore enables the technology to fit more seamlessly into what we could say the the cracks, the crevices, the various parts of our daily life, our business life, so that it becomes more intuitive and ultimately, therefore, far more useful. Is is yeah, far more useful, and again, it enhances our our human capability. I mean, look, we we use AI continuously throughout the, throughout the day already. You know, so it's already a part of what we do, and it's become part of our part of ourselves. Like the, you know, the nature of of what makes us human, you know, uh, changes you know changes as we use tech, uh, technology, or, or the nature of our human capabilities change as we use technology in different ways. So again, you know, using things like internet search capability, you can uh, uh, it extends your your your. Uh, your recall powers and your ability to find things, your directional capability, and, and such, in, a lot, in uh, many ways, and that that uh, that effect just gets magnified as you look at applying those kind of concepts more profoundly throughout the way you you drive the you know, run your business and drive your business processes, and that is that is what we're talking about, and that is how you use the human capability in your organization. The E in the ideas framework is expertise. So we're talking here about things like machine teaching, not machine learning, but machine teaching, which is how do you use human expertise. To, you know, to train your processes and your systems more effectively. We're talking about an example of the book from Etsy, you know, the, uh, you know, the, uh, the uh, e-commerce you know, company where um, they use, they use uh, you know, their human expertise of their designers to establish design aesthetic, you know, to train you know, and run different design aesthetic and patterns and such that then enhance the consumer experience that people have on their websites. An example, again, of, of you know, machine, you know, machine expert, uh, I'm sorry, uh, you know, machine teaching and human expertise being leveraged in a very different way. So I think, as you said, it's it's that really that amplification of uh, everything we do and maximizing the potential of the human capability. And at the end of the day, it becomes a lot of the um, you know the human expertise, the softer skills, the um, uh, the uh, ability of, of humans to um, you know to work together, to collaborate, to understand patterns, to do cross-domain problem analysis, and things like that that become real differentiators. What should folks in the enterprise who are listening do about all of this? What does this imply for companies and the way that we relate to technology and business? It's got a lot of implications for you know, for uh, for the way we the way you think about things from a, a business perspective. Uh, we talk in the in the book about you know, first of all the ideas framework and thinking about these assumptions differently. The the uh, intelligence, data, expertise, architecture, and strategy. And when you get to the strategy, that's one thing enterprises need to think about differently. We talk about three different uh, new forms of strategy that we believe you need to incorporate in, your, in, uh, in the way that you plan for the future. One is called forever beta. And this is, talk, this is kind of the, the, the concept that you're never quite done with your product. Think about Tesla as an example, the way Tesla works and continually new software releases to your car, changing your driver experience as you go. And that's increasingly a, mod, you know, a strategy and a model that companies will need to follow. Another uh, strategy we talk about is um, uh, we call uh, um, 
minimum viable idea, which is taking all these cut, these idea, you know, the IDEA things that we just talked about, and blending them together to create uh, a new form, in, uh, a new uh, uh, strategy based on uh, leveraging the technology in this more radically human way. And the example we talked about in the book is Lemonade. You know, this the startup insurer who has crafted a, a very different uh, business model. Uh, you know, with uh, engaging their customers in a very different way, leveraging the the concepts we talk about in the book to, uh, you know, to create a very, um, you know, consumer centric way, very different way of, uh, of constructing insurance products. And then the third strategy we talk about is, is collab, which is a kind of play on words a little bit, which is collab, which is like collaboration, but it's also collab bringing the science and technology together. And uh, which we see as a big impact as we look at where technology is going. And one of the companies we talk about in the book is Moderna. And uh, this was a lesson learned during the pandemic of how Moderna pioneered a whole new science of, you know, of uh, vaccine delivery through messenger RNA, it found the treatment, uh, clinical trials through, you know, the diagnostics, et cetera, very, you know, unprecedented pace. And if you look at underneath how they did it, it was a drug discovery studio powered by the cloud, convolutional neural networks, data you know, used in the way we're talking about to drive a very different outcome. And that's the example of that collab strategy to action. So to answer your question that, you know, it's it's a different way of thinking about the strategy. It's much much more dynamic living way of doing your business and IT strategy together than companies have previously done. What about the convergence of enterprise technology and consumer technology and consumer expectations? It's all becoming inextricably woven together if you think about how technology is proceeding. So I, I'm not sure you can just, you can uh, differentiate the two anymore. It's uh, if you look at what's happening with technology from artificial intelligence to uh, to the metaverse to web three to you know uh, yeah, anything you can you know, that, that you might mention, it's the worlds are blending together and you can't think about it as, as distinctly. And I think that's uh, creates a great opportunity for uh, CIOs and for enterprise technology organizations in terms of approaching technology differently. So some of the implications we see and we talk about in the book and, and in the rest in the other work that we do is things like um, you know the product development and how do you shift to a product you know pro from a IT mindset and a service mindset to a product mindset and product you know product development mindset, product you know, product management uh, disciplines and such which is becoming essential as organizations look to you know shifting from IT as a as uh, kind of running the business to IT, producing the, the digital products that, that enable the business, which is the journey that uh, all organizations are on, you know, at, you know are on uh, some degree of change on right now. So is that that's you know a dimension of change. I think there's a, a whole set of changes around what does it take to integrate you know consumer experience with with the enterprise experiences, and uh, this whole idea of experience driven technology, which is a whole chapter in the book. There's a whole chapter in Radically Human dedicated to this idea of experience and creating uh, experiences in the right way. It's really essential. Those companies that create the better experiences for your consumers or your workers, for that matter, uh, will be the winners going forward. And that doesn't just mean in the B2C market. If you're in a B2B business, it's how do you work with your business partners and such and create those distinctive experiences in different ways and creating that experience uh, you know, experience design and uh, design thinking kind of mindsets around it. Uh, again, our, all organizations are on some stage of that journey, but it becomes increasingly relevant as uh, as you look at this. And then th there's an element also around trust. And the, again, there's a whole chapter in the book devoted to trust, because if you think about experience and you think about technology and you think about AI and metaverse and all these new technologies, the issue of trust increasingly comes up. 
and I would uh, make a you know be willing to make a wager for with uh, with all of you that um, as we look into the next decade, the biggest differentiator uh, among companies will be the degree of trust that you can engender with your with your consumers and workers because the trust is going to allow you to get the data and, and uh, have the access to create those experiences that are really going to differentiate you. So trust becomes a fundamental ca- capability to think about and really understanding deeply what, you know, what things that you do increase the trust, what things that you do, you know, erode or, or, or challenge the trust that you have with all of your stakeholders, it, it becomes really critical. So those are some of the things that I think are really become becoming a center of thinking as you think about this consumer and enterprise blend that's happening. And as we look forward, uh, we can get into Metaverse and Web3 and some of these things. It's even more pronounced as, as we look to the future of where digital technology is going, which is increasingly in that direction as we as we talk about in the book. On Twitter, uh, Lewis Columbus, who's, who's a great software industry analyst, really latches on to this idea of forever beta that you were just talking about. And it, it seems that a fundamental aspect of all of this is really changing the relationship that we have to technology, which for many organizations, for many of us, it requires such a, a huge mindset shift, how we think about the technology, how we think about technology development. For example, Forever Beta is a different way of developing software. What is, I think, one of the most challenging jobs of, of any in the uh, today is the the CIO job uh, because of because of some of these changes going on because if the CIO has to you know keep everything running keep the organization you know uh, uh, you know and all organizations are so technology dependent I think we saw during COVID what a lifeline technology was to keeping every organization running uh, but the CIO role needs to be so much more beyond that. It's about, as you said, Michael, in this, uh, with the question uh, you know, coming in, it's about innovation. It's about thinking to the new and changing the, the approach. It's about inspiration and intentionally using eyes with all these. These are the redefinition of the CIO. It's information and infrastructure to innovation, to inspiration, inspiring the business and the co- business colleagues in terms of what what are the, the what's the power and the new way to apply technology it's the intelligence officer in terms of understanding you know different possibilities and what's out there it's the inclusion officer in terms of looking to to create the talent and build you know the inclusive and diverse talent that you need to to build technology properly so i think the cio role is increasingly stretching along these different dimensions which makes it makes it, makes it hugely exciting but it also makes it uh, a very challenging role and i think one of the biggest challenges that we all need to do, all of us that are involved in technology and applying technology need to really do and think about is uh, helping reimagine, you know, what the what the future can be, how reimagine how you can do the business differently. Because I think too often we get stuck in seeing a new technology, just pasting it in uh, and applying it the same way we're doing things before. And there's a, a, there's a real need to resist that temptation and look at how we really create that change as we go forward, which is why we fundamentally wrote Radically Human. Can you elaborate, Paul, if if you were a CIO, a chief information officer today, what would you be doing with respect to all of this? I'd be trying to really create a learning organization because things are moving so fast that um, you really need a, and, and by learning organization, I mean a learning organization within IT, but also uh, a cultural change to, you know, to, to help the, inspire the rest of the organization to be a learning organization because with the technology moving as it is, 
IT needs to move faster and you know, reinvent themselves every day to understand the new technologies and what the possibilities are. And the only way to do that is by creating a learning environment, a learning organization. Uh, we have something we call TQ, Technology Quotient, which is something, you know, kind of a, a way we use to educate, inspire, and inform all of our people in addition to all of our other learning platforms. And uh, I'd encourage everybody to really think about that because um, you, you can't you, you can't go higher. The point I keep making, you can't go higher the skills of the future because they don't exist yet. You have to figure out how to create them in your own workforce in addition to, you know, refreshing and bringing in some from the outside. And then you need to do the same in the business because a lot of the next generation of technology is about democratizing technology access and impact. And so it's it's creating, you know, the learning capability within the whole organizations. You have, you're democratizing through low code, you know, no code tools in terms of creating business capability or democratizing uh, decision making through, uh, you know, through uh, data analytics tools and AI tools that are available to, uh, you know, to more people across the business and such. So uh, the single thing I would zero in on is a learning organization. The le- organizations that can learn faster and spread it faster than the organizations, I think, are going to be well positioned for the future. Let's go to some questions from Twitter. And Arsalan Khan says, large organizations have tons of data that they can use for innovation. How can small businesses compete when they don't have that much data to work with? And I will just add, when they don't have that much data, but also their level of sophistication and access to sophisticated skills is is less compared to large companies. There's two sides to that, because I think large organizations do have access to data and, and uh, sometimes uh, more data and such uh, in the skills. But the, the, I mean, this democratization of technology is real. You know, the, the capability that you can you can easily access through, uh, you know, the cloud, you know, the cloud platforms, the AI engines and capabilities that are widely available is is profound, and uh, it really does democratize the access to smaller organizations. Yes, you know, if you're in a really small organization, you know, do you have somebody who can, you know, has the time to go out and learn those tools? You know, that's, you know, that may be a challenge in some cases, but uh, it's very different than the way it was. Ten, you know, five years ago, ten years ago, or twenty years ago, where you need to stand up teams and data centers and infrastructure and uh, make big investments to to get this stuff working. You could access a capability through an API and a service in a cloud platform and funnel data in very quickly to to do some you know, some uh, very uh, uh, very uh, profound analysis. We write about some examples of the book in the in the book about very small organizations who have who have taken um, advantage of that capability to improve uh improve their uh their businesses so i think it's uh i think there's 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 two sides to that yes the you know, big organizations have an advantage but the democratization of the technology combined with some new learning technologies we talk about few shot learning for example which is a much simpler way uh, sometimes powered by the cloud platforms to train uh you know ai algorithms based on just a few instances of data rather than uh hundreds of thousands of instances of data those types of techniques you know stand to leverage the playing field more there's a, a real opportunity for smaller businesses because it's just so much easier and so much cheaper, for one thing, to build that infrastructure that you were just describing. That's right. And there's a lot, a lot of publicly available data and such as well, and the, the different platforms are, are opening up different sources of data. So so it's all about you know, figuring out if you know, any small, small business is going to have this strategy of what differentiates you, and then figuring out how do you get that data, whether it be big or small, you know, how, do you, how do you access some of that data to, to create the advantage you need? We have another really interesting question, practical question from uh, this time on LinkedIn. And this is from Suman Kumar Chandra, who says, 
how can CIOs bring themselves up to speed to decide which technologies will be most useful for their business and how to use them when there are just so many technologies on the market? Every day, new technologies are coming up. And how in the world do we prioritize and find our, find our way through this forest of great technologies? That's, again, another reason why the, uh, the CIO job is a challenging one, because the the old, the old technologies uh, don't really go away. They, they're still out there somewhere in the closet, and uh, and uh, you need to take care of the the, the, the current and legacy technologies as you investigate uh, and learn about the new and apply the new. I think the um, I mean, there's a couple things I would say. One is it is about prioritization and fig, you know figuring out those things that uh, that that do make a difference to your business and in channeling and, or and, uh, prioritizing and allocating the appropriate amount of resources. Based on that, uh, so for example, um, you know, with uh, you know, if you take different you know categories of technology, I'd say with cloud technology, you know, we, we see as, as many organizations, most organizations moving rapidly to cloud. You know, roughly we see about thirty percent, about uh, most organizations having about thirty percent of their workloads in the cloud. You know, on average, a lot left to go um, with, with the cloud uh, migration still. But but what's important about that if you look at that 30% statistic on cloud I just talked about, if we ask another question about how much, you know, how much are you really leveraging the power and innovation of the cloud, only 13% of companies say they're really doing that. So 30% of the workloads in the cloud, only 13% believe they're leveraging the innovation because migrating, getting the workloads to the cloud doesn't, you know, doesn't in most cases deliver the full potential yet. So, and, and that's kind of part of the answer to the question of prioritization. To the extent you can get to the cloud, which is not just about cheaper compute, it's about standardized platforms that allow tremendous access to innovate, innovative capabilities and services and such, and becomes the platform to drive your innovation at greater velocity. And that's you know, one thing I would say is uh, that we see in, uh, you know, what we hear from customers as we help them move to the cloud is getting there is one thing, but then really you know, growing and innovating the business in the cloud is, uh, is where they want to go from there. So there's kind of prioritized like that. I'd say that's, that's kind of a, you know, a, a a, a strategy to prioritize that so you can get to a more innovative, innovative higher velocity uh, innovation environment. As you look to things like artificial intelligence, I think every organization needs to be uh, investing in artificial intelligence in different ways. Do you need to be doing, again, the, the most sophisticated um, deep learning neural network models in every part of your business? No, but probably not, but you should be looking at where it can make a difference and also have teams looking at studying the new techniques, studying the uh, uh, you know, new evolving techniques, the common sense, uh, emotional AI, and other things, so that there's some effort being applied on that and some effort being applied on scaling the real capability and creating the centers of excellence for that that you need to drive. Then, as you look at newer things, uh, metaverse, which is you know coming on the scene and probably the most uh, talked about technology, maybe the most, uh, you're probably you know, it's probably the biggest uh, surge of interest we've ever seen in any technology over my 30 years has been in what's happening with the metaverse and in, in the in the recent times. And uh, that's a technology where again, it's it's uh, it's not just for tomorrow. There's there's implications of it today, and uh, depending on your industry and what part of your business you're looking at, there's moves you need to be thinking about today and making today. In addition to probably you know areas you need to be learning about and applying. You know, for example, thinking about augmented experiences for your workers and uh, virtual experiences for onboarding employees and training employees, which we do at scale in our company as an example. That's today. Thinking about uh, 
you know, at scale NFT based products and uh, how you're going to leverage digital currencies and such certainly should be understanding and maybe dipping your toe into those as well. But yeah, uh, at least in the in the understanding curve on. So I kind of look at it as a prioritization across the spectrum and really, uh, you know, keeping an open mind uh, as as you look at the prioritization. Be sure to subscribe to the CXO Talk newsletter. Hit the subscribe button at the top of our website. So, Paul, the metaverse has become very important to you. You just formed, I believe, a new business unit fo focused on the metaverse. Why? Why does the metaverse matter that much? What we've done is, uh, you know, to think about the metaverse, we started this in Radically Human, and then we released our technology vision and uh, expanded it on this uh, on this concept. We, we really believe that businesses need to frame the way that you think about the metaverse in a different way than you hear about kind of in the generally in the in the media. Uh, the metaverse isn't just about consumer. It's not just about NFT and cryptocurrency. The metaverse is really about the next stage of how we create digital experiences. We call it the metaverse continuum. Uh, for, and I'll come back to what I mean by continuum in a minute. And um, and that's an important way to think about it. If you reframe your thinking this way, then then a lot of aspects of the meta metaverse become relevant you know, immediately and today. And as a fundamental driver and why I, why I believe you can't ignore the metaverse is because it really is driven by fundamental technology advances that are happening, whether <laughs> whether you want them to or not, or whether you like it or not, they are happening and, and they're, uh, they're opportunities and generally positive changes that are happening with technology. And Web3 is a big part of that. So Web3, you know, if you, you know the technology is coming out about Web3, uh, you know, do enable a new new set of experiences that are enabling you know, the, the metaverse capabilities. Web1, of course, being you know, search and basic data on the internet where Google Search was the killer app. Web two being, you know, about a decade ago, uh, social, mobile apps and such came online, and you saw, you know, uh, the share, sharing economy uh, companies becoming, you know, being the killer apps as four G and other technology uh, proliferated. That was Web two, and now we're seeing Web three, and Web three is adding two new capabilities. Web three is adding the Internet of Place, which is shared collaborative spaces, not just through virtual reality, but through two D reality or two D interfaces as well, phones and, and laptops. And it's also creating an internet of ownership for the first time having real distinct, provable, verifiable uh, identity, authenticity, and ownership, which you couldn't have in the internet where you know, something forwarded once could be forwarded a million times. And that internet of ownership and internet of place is creating a potential for, for transformation bigger than the jump from you know, web one to web two. And uh, that's why I believe the next decade of digital transformation is going to be bigger than the decade before. It was just 10 years ago, We, Michael, you mentioned we just introduced our tech vision this year, the uh, uh, earlier this month, and the title was Meet Me in the Metaverse. Our tech vision 10 years ago was titled Every Business is a Digital Business. And when we said that 10 years ago, when Web2 was coming online, people disagreed. They thought that was far-fetched and such, but it really quickly became reality. And the last 10 years has been about every business moving to become a digital business. I think with Web3 coming in the metaverse, it really is about uh, a decade of even bigger transformation than the one we've seen because the new technologies fundamentally change the inside of how you do digital, not just the, you know, not to, they don't just wrap digital around what you were doing previously, uh, which is why this is something every you know, business leader and technology leader needs to understand going forward. And the final point on it is what I, what I meant, what I mean by the continuum as you reframe it. Is it's not just about the consumer things you read about uh, board apes and uh, you know different things you might see out there. 
uh, you know, Roblox and and such. It's it's uh, it's about the employees and what you do. We have, we'll, we'll onboard 150,000 people in Accenture using virtual reality into our end floor metaverse this year. We're ho- yeah, we've hosted our leadership and our board and others and many clients in the metaverse. And so it's creating those those new experiences uh, for for you know employees and workers, uh, not just you know consumers, and changing the way you work. It's not just about 3D experiences. About it's about the 2D and how you blend the 2D and 3D. It's not just about the virtual. It's about reality. How you combine augmented work and digital twins and edge and such in to create a, a streamlined and integrated virtual to react to to uh, real world and back type of experiences. And it's a continuum in terms of um, you know time in ter- as the uh, metaverse in Web three and these technologies mature over time. So I, I believe if it's not obvious, I believe this is a big deal. I think this is going to be what you know one of the things, uh, along with a few others that I can talk about, that'll define the next decade when you think about how you apply technology. What's the time frame for adoption of these technologies of the metaverse? Do you suppose? Like any wave of technology, it, it, it gets a label after it's been around for a while. So. You know, we were doing cloud work before the cloud became, you know, commonly used. It was called utility computing and other things, as as you'll recall back from the day. Um, the uh, similarly augmented reality, virtual reality, blockchain, digital currencies, all the constituent components of this dig- digital twin technology. These things have been around. What's happening with the state of technology? The standards are converging. The scale is increasing. The um, and uh, some of the new technologies that are coming online to enable you to, to do this in an integrated way as an enterprise. So it's already it's already happening. We have companies doing interesting things. As I as I said, we'll onboard 150,000 people into uh, into our which into what we believe is the, the biggest enterprise metaverse, which is our end floor. We're doing interesting work for clients around augmented reality, uh, so that you can use a digital twin to simulate performance, and then use augmented reality to change plant performance in real time. Things like that, blending the experiences together. Um, training organizations, very sophisticated organizations, uh, in real time using the technology. Many, you know, many different applications. In, I'd say in retail and financial services right now, uh, overwhelming interest and a lot of experimentation and, and real work we're doing with clients around creating their metaverse retail presences, their metaverse products. How do they bridge the the, the real products and the digital products? You know, things like Gucci's purse selling for more in. Uh, you know, Gucci's purse sold for more in their uh, metaverse than it did in the real world. Things like that are are uh, raising a lot of interest and attention. One point that I find very interesting is you're thinking about the metaverse, thinking about digital twins as part of the talent culture and training. That it, because historically we've thought about digital twins as being manufacturing equipment, simulating a, a, a jet engine or a nuclear reactor, for example. My view is that we're on a, a journey that's going to happen relatively fast for the enterprise, for the enterprise itself and business itself to be a digital twin. You know, the analogy I'd use is think about a think about an annual report a few years from now. You know, the annual report today, you read it on paper, you poke something online kind of one way. Think about an annual report where you can step into the company's boardroom, interact with the executives, then hop off to a retail store and see what how consumers are are uh, are engaging with the product, then go over to a plant and see how they're manufacturing it. Uh, that's that's not too far in the distant future, and think about the engaging experience that you can create there. And as an executive at the company, think about you know having that same kind of capability, so you can see a digital twin of of the business and simulate different kind of operating characteristics and environments, and and change and reconfigure the business as a result. That that is you know the the path we're on. 
I believe, with enterprise technology. And again, the current wave of digital has been a little bit of the wiring the plumbing to allow that to happen. And the next stage that we're entering into is a real exciting stage to really run business differently. And this is why you know, the connection to radically human comes back in, because I think this is a really interesting future in terms of you know the, the, the potential of workers, the potential of leaders, the potential of you know consumers you know, to use services in a much more compelling way. And Wayne Anderson says, what kind of, he says, anti-patterns have we picked up during this tech and human symbiosis that will hold us back from developing as radically human as the way you've been describing it? So what do we have to change? That is something that we need to, to work on. And that, that, to be honest, that's why I wrote the first book, Human Plus Machine, because I was concerned about the anti-patterns and we wanted to put them out there and, and show how they could be corrected. And a lot of the work of Human Plus Machine was showing positive potential and how to overcome uh, overcome things like the uh, the fear of the technology, the fear that was going to put everybody out of their jobs, the fear that it was going to take over you know, the human race and all these things, which we didn't, uh, which we fundamentally don't subscribe to. I, th- I think some of those same patterns are still out there because there's a fundamental human, uh, there's a fundamental human behavior that we, we're, we're the ones who create technology. So technology doesn't create itself. We, we create technology and then we're, we, then we fear it. <laughs> and so there's this dynamic with, with every technology that comes about. And we're seeing this with, with metaverse right now and a lot of uh, backlash against metaverse, justifiably so, because there are a lot of real considerations around trust and privacy, uh, inclusion, um, children's access, uh, many other things that are real concerns in the metaverse. But that's true of the, the real world. Uh, it's just a mirror of the real world and a mirror of us. And they're all things that we can deal with in the right way. So one of the things we talk about in um, Radically Human, and we also talk about our tech vision, is this idea of responsibility and trust. And uh, we believe that in the Web2 era, we didn't really start Web2 as an industry or as a, as a technology industry. We didn't start Web2 with enough focus on responsibility and setting it up to avoid the anti-patterns, as you say. We're at a point with Web3 and Metaverse where we can get it right this time. And uh, that's why we're really, uh, as an organization and in, in, as a, in individually, I'm really focused on all the elements of responsible metaverse, which is trust and safety around use of the internet, it's data privacy and identity, which again, there's very promising solutions to with the, with the Web3 technologies. Uh, there's um, uh, there's uh, in- inclusion and uh, and uh, behavior on the internet, a variety of other, th- on the metaverse, I'm sorry, and a variety of other things that, uh, that we all need to focus on. I think it's our, all of our obligation to really study and understand these things so that as we build our early forays into metaverse or with any new technology, we're applying it in a responsible way and avoiding, as you say, the anti-patterns. The other big issue that uh, uh, that I've been very focused on for a number of years and still very focused on is how do we create the right environment and, and, and skills to enable this and, and allow those that don't have the digital skills to succeed in the new environment. Um, and that's why we've been very focused on reskilling and talent creation. How do we create people who can fill these new jobs that don't exist at scale yet, the world builders of uh, tomorrow, the AI ethicists and such. And uh, that's why we're donating all the net proceeds and royalties of, of uh, Radically Human to organizations who are focused on reskilling those who don't have current access to those skills that they can be have viable uh, skills in the, the new um, in the new economy that's being created. Bhagya Subaretti says, can you share a few tips with CIOs on how to bring business along the journey of the reimagined future? Specifically, she's talking about managing change for large 
global organizations that are risk averse? Two things. One is education and really just focus on the education because I think that goes a long way. Education, case studies, and ways to help people understand the impact. And the second is uh, advice that uh, we talked to, talked about as, we, as, as we're releasing our tech vision, which is an approach of you know think big, start small and scale fast. So think big and educate around the big potential. Start small and in a focused way where you can prove the results, but do that in a way with the architecture, the foundation, the approach that you can scale it fast and uh, meet the expectations of the business as you go. Arsalan Khan comes back and he says, to be a data-driven organization, we need to have culture and executives that have no veto power over data recommendations. Do you agree or disagree? You need is uh, a clear and unified data governance approach. So it's clear who can make the data, uh, the data decisions. I think in too many organizations, the data governance is fragmented and, uh, and not clearly understood. And, uh, and so you, you end up with different versions of the truth and, and all sorts of things. So I, I, I think I agree with the question, but I, I think it comes down to, to, to a single agreed upon data governance approach. Shailesh Pachuri says, what is the mantra for success when it comes to adopting current technology? What's the foundation? How to be successful? Business value and human acceptance. So, you know, uh, implementing something that clearly improves the business that people see the value of doing it and support it and rally behind it and the human acceptance, doing it in a way uh, where, you know, some of the concepts we talked about today, the, the, uh, machine, the machine teaching, the experience, the trust are, are thought about in a way where, you know, people are accepting and, and, and using and maximizing use of the, of the technology to increase their own potential. Okay. And with that, unfortunately, we are out of time. We've been speaking with Paul Doherty. He is the Group Chief Executive for Technology at Accenture. He is also Accenture's Chief Technology Officer. He wrote this book. It's called Radically Human. His previous book was Human Plus Machine. And with that, Paul, thank you so much for coming back and being a guest on CXO Talk again. No, thanks. It's uh, always a pleasure talking. I look forward to the next time uh, as well. And uh, the time really flies. So thanks to you and your audience. And speaking of the audience, thank you everybody for watching and especially to those folks who ask such insightful questions. I love the CXO Talk audience. You guys are so smart and so experienced. And I certainly learn a lot from your questions. Before you go, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Hit the subscribe button at the top of our website so we can send you our newsletter and keep you up to date on who we have coming up as guests. Thanks so much, everybody. I hope you have a great day and we will see you next time. Bye-bye.